The text for our Advent series is Isaiah chapter 9. Today I'll be reading verses 6 and 7. As we explore the names that Isaiah gives to the coming Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, the reading of God's word. Last week I did an introduction to this passage and I talked about Isaiah who is writing before Israel gets taken into exile in a very dark period in Israel's history. I said that Isaiah's original audience, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, wasn't thinking about a character named Jesus. They they were probably hearing this message as something much more immediate. That perhaps Isaiah writes these words um, speaking of a king. Or a prince that's being coronated to, uh, to maybe help lead and lead the people out of this grave time that they're in. Of course, more than a king is happening, and Isaiah is definitely saying that. He's looking for eternal changes, increasing in peace and governance to the end, bringing justice and righteousness forevermore. He ends with, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's something that God is doing, not that some prince or some king will do. And he gives royal titles to this coming one. That he's looking in the future, kind of saying, who is this? Today we are looking at the title, Mighty God. I gave you a couple words for the day that I'm going to go over in this sermon. And the first one is the word for mighty. It's the Hebrew word gabor. It means strong and valiant. As in a mighty man of valor. It's used in the Bible of being mightier than a beast. Or like a mighty army. It has this sense of, of, of conquering. Of fighting. Of going to war. war. It's, a, it's a sense of, of being a warrior. Mighty. The word for God is a very simple word in Hebrew. It's just the word El. It, it's not the, the name of Yahweh, the name of the, the one true God. It's really kind of a generic word, El, just meaning God. Uh, El can mean God, but, but sometimes uh, it can also just mean one that's from God or divine one. And so it's not, it's not entirely clear if Isaiah is speaking of a king in his day, is he saying that this king is going to be God? Probably he means more this king is going to be one from God. And, and the, not that he's going to be God himself, but that he's going to be someone who's anointed by God, someone who's used by God, and therefore he, he's a divine one. He's one that comes from God, and this is language that is used of kings in the Old Testament. So how do we understand this? Is this really talking about God? Is it talking about a divine one who's anointed by God? And we're going to have to wrestle with this a little bit as we look to how the New Testament looks at Jesus. Certainly Jesus was mighty, right? All the miracles that he did, feeding 5,000 people with a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread, healing so many, 
someone blind from birth. It just wasn't, he didn't just heal people that were like kind of injured, right? Person who was blind from birth had never seen before. This wasn't some recent injury and just got better. This person had never seen. People that had never walked are suddenly getting up and trying to learn how to walk. Jesus is certainly strong with the Pharisees, right? As they question him, as they pursue him, as they try to trap him, he is a warrior against them. And the image of Revelation is definitely that Jesus is a mighty warrior winning a battle. And it's described in the Revelation as a battle. So there's no doubt that Jesus is mighty. The question that the New Testament writers and the question that the early church is really wrestling with is, was Jesus God? If he was God, in what ways? Was he just God? Was he anointed one sent by God? There had been other people like that. And the language of the Bible is a little bit complicated on this. We have a Jesus described in the Bible who is very human. He grew up. He cried. He ate. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got angry. He has all these emotions and sensations that a human being has. He spoke to God the Father, said he was obeying God the Father. The language seems to imply there that he's not God the Father, but is distinct from because he talks to and listens to God. In fact, his family and his hometown have trouble believing him. Because how do you believe the guy that grew up next door is actually the son of God, right? You're Jesus. We used to play dodgeball out back, right? Jesus is human enough that the people that knew him growing up have trouble accepting that he actually is who he says he is. So the question is not whether he's human. The text is very clear. He's human. In every way, he's human. But was he God? Certainly he does all these miracles. Certainly he spoke to God on a personal level that no human has ever spoken to God before. He didn't just heal, but he also forgave sins. That's something that God would do. Listen to some of the things the Bible says about Jesus. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Paul, writing to Timothy, clearly says, God was manifest in the flesh. That this isn't just a mere human, but God is a part of this. John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Somehow he was with God, but he also was God. John five eighteen says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For the Pharisees, when Jesus says that, I, that, that God is his father, he's claiming to be of the family of God. And the Pharisees can't stand that. They can't stand that. Not only is he breaking their rules that they find so much security in, he's claiming to be a family member of God on high. Remember when he goes to Thomas, he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put, all, put all out your hand and place it in my side, right? This is him seeing to Thomas after the resurrection. Come on, it's really me. 
I'm really physical. You can feel the holes. You can feel where the spear pierced my side. Did not disbelieve, but believe. And what does Thomas answer him? My Lord and my God. Certainly the claim of the Bible, and these are just a couple of examples, is that this Jesus actually is God. But, but listen to what Jesus says about himself. John 14, says, Jesus says, Do not believe, do you not believe, that I am in the Father and the Father is in, in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak with, on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Right? I'm not just separate from the Father. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. I mean, this is complicated language. Jesus says in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, it sounds there like Jesus has a terrible sense of past, present, and future, right? Before Abraham was, I am. But the phrase I am is, is what the word Yahweh means. It's what it means when God says, you know what, you know what my name is? I am. I wasn't past, I wasn't future, I'm not present, I, I am. I'm all these things. When Jesus says I am, he is clearly connecting himself with God. In Mark 14, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. He's not just saying I am. Like, yeah, I am. He's saying I am. I am that one. Yeah, I am, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And that's when the Pharisees are outraged. And that's when they decide we've got to take this Jesus to the Roman authorities to have him crucified. This is just a small sample of many such claims and statements. The claim of the Bible, and indeed the claim of Jesus, is that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. We call this the incarnation. Carne, meaning flesh. Incarnation, becoming in, coming into, becoming flesh. So we have these two claims. Jesus, who is human, right? Jesus is human, and Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. But, but how does that work? Some have said over church history that he's half and half, right? He's kind of part God, part human, kind of this hybrid, a little bit of both, not totally either. But the two mix like yellow dyed water and blue dyed water make this sort of green Jesus that's kind of half and half. Some have said that Jesus switches back and forth. So, so when Jesus is hungry, or when he's angry in the temple, he's acting out of the human side. And then sometimes, you know, he's healing or he's transfigured or he's doing all these other things where he's acting out of the God side. In reality, some question whether he was only one or the other. Maybe he's just as human, like Isaiah may be implying in his text back 800 years before Jesus. Maybe he's human, but he's just got this special anointing from God that God is working through him. Or maybe he's just God pretending to be human, right? It's God walking around, but he just pretends, he doesn't need to eat, but he pretends to eat. And he pretends to cry, and he pretends to do all these things. All these have been proposed throughout Christian history. But none of them completely make sense of the Bible text about who this Jesus was. 
And the early church decided, it made it official in the first council of Ephesus in 431 AD. But it's very clear from the writings of Paul and other early, early writings that, that for the most part, the church believed that Jesus has to be both of these things. He has to be fully human and he has to be fully God. And the, the problem is, logically, the math doesn't add up. He's got to be 100% this and he's got to be 100% this. And he's somehow got to be both those things in 100% Jesus. He's got to be 200% and 100% of him. But that is the claim. That's the Bible case. That's what the church decides very early on. And that's the claim of the traditional church. And the claim is critical. Because the whole Bible is about the gap between these two things. God makes humanity. And he makes this world. And what happens to humanity? They fall. They sin. And there's this big gap that happens between humanity and God. They're separate. And through the whole Old Testament, even though God is working to bring covenants and God is bringing kings and God is bringing prophets, it becomes clearer and clearer that there's no way humanity is ever going to bridge this gap. Right? They're never going to make it. And so God's going to have to do something to bring these two together, to make them one, to renew the relationship. That's the word atonement. I'm teaching you some important words today. Atonement. Very easy word to understand because you just break it down. At one meant. To make things at one. Atonement means to to fix the relationship. To bring two things that are separate back to be one thing. And that is what Jesus came to do. These two things that were separated. And Jesus comes and he becomes both of these things. He's God. He's got to be totally God to be able to do this. And he comes to become totally flesh. And so you get this fully human and fully divine person, okay? That these two things are so separate that God's got to come and fix the gap between humanity and God. And what God does is at one point mixes them right together in this one person of Jesus. Fully human, fully divine. Neither one is lost. Both of them are fully there. And yes, there has to be a cross. Yes, there has to be payment for the sin that gave the gap between the two. But do you understand that in Jesus' very person, being fully human and fully divine, he's already beginning the healing process between humanity and God. He is already in who he is, fixing these, this two separations. Saying these two are not going to be separated anymore. They're going to be at one. And it's going to start out being at one in me. In my incarnation. In me being fully human and fully divine. And then this perfect one goes to the cross. And pays the debt so that we can all be at one with the Father as well. Is this a little bit complicated? Yeah, this is a challenging kind of thing to think about. But it's important. I think it's important to think about, especially during Advent. First of all, Advent and Christmas are times when we celebrate the incarnation. Okay, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus became a baby and came among us. But we often don't think about the idea of atonement, the saving work of Jesus related to Christmas. We often think about that as at Easter. And I think we need to think about it here too. Because in the person of Jesus, he's actually healing. He is actually living out the healing that he came to accomplish. 
And that's just not something he accidentally does on his way to the cross. It's a central part of, of Jesus' saving work. And so I think we need to consider Jesus' saving work at Christmas. Second, the story that we tell during this time of year is part of this theology, right? We have this whole thing called a virgin birth. And uh, during the virgin birth, um, we have uh, Mary, who, who has not been with a man. She's a virgin. And yet the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and somehow she's pregnant. And Joseph rightly doesn't believe this, right? Joseph's like, what? And God has to come to Joseph in a dream and say, no, 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 this is actually from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to name this one Jesus, and, and he's going to save his people. This was written about in the prophets. See, the story that we celebrate at Christmas is the story of this miracle. This miracle happening in the womb of Mary, where Jesus is fully human and he's fully divine. He's both there. And it's part of, it's part of this healing, part of this atonement, part of this whole work of Jesus. That the perfect sacrifice, the perfect atoning one, the perfect healer is being formed in her womb. But I think it's also important for another reason. I don't see this as a dry and heady doctrine. I hope that you can see the hope in this reality. Jesus is human. Jesus is human. He knows what it's like to have pain. He knows what it's like to suffer a loss. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He was betrayed by a friend. He was abandoned by all his friends. He lost his friend John, probably lost his earthly father Joseph. When you go through stuff in your life, you're not, you're not worshiping this abstract God who has no sense of what it means to go through what you went through. No, you worship a God who knows precisely what it's like to go through what you go through. And yet, he is mighty God. He's not just a God that understands. He is a God that has the power, ready to fight, ready to be a warrior for you in the midst of your pain and your suffering and your grief. When you think the odds are stacked against you and you're trying to do something for God that's way bigger than you think you can accomplish, I'm telling you, you've got a mighty God that'll fight for you in those times. Let me end with the words of Charles Wesley as we sang them earlier in this service. Note that you've already been proclaiming and singing together the truths that I'm preaching here. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Lord we thank you. For your incarnation and your atonement. That you came. And that you save. That you became one of us. And understand what we go through. And through that you make us right with God the Father. Help us to reflect on these truths here at Christmas time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.